You're listening to a podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. My name is Tom Johnson, and today I'm talking with Lisa Melancone, who's a professor of TechCom at the University of Cincinnati, and we're talking about uh, this academic-practitioner divide. Uh, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Let's start with my last name. It's Melanson, and, and that makes my Cajun grandmothers very happy that I'm saying that correctly. Um Wait, 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 wait. So there's, how did you say that again? Melanson. Oh, well, there's no C-O-N kind of sound to it at all? No, we dropped the Sedalia that goes on the C a couple of generations ago. But, <sighs> yeah. All right. Wait, you got to let me, you got to let me start that over. <laughs> okay, hold on. How do I, Melanson? Everybody says it wrong, Tom. This is why I don't, it doesn't bother me. I just let you go. I correct it and I move <sighs> okay. forward. It's fine. All right. All right. That's fine then. Well, because <laughs> it. Uh, I imagine you get that a lot. So, Molasso. Molasso. Right? Okay, we, we won't start over. We'll just keep going. <laughs> um, so, all right, t- go ahead and, and uh, continue telling me a little bit about yourself. The first technical communication I ever did, I was in the U.S. Army. and didn't know it was technical communication, but I was writing user manuals for uh, missile guidance systems. So, when I got out of the military, I just kind of stayed in technical communication, again, not really knowing what it was. And I started my own company in 1994, and I primarily went into a whole variety of organizations to solve communication problems. I did a ton of usability during that time, and not traditional usability. Um, We looked at racking systems for cell phone towers. We did testing on some of the very first flip phones. Um, I did a lot of work in the health and medical fields. Uh, writing documentation and improving the user experience of new radiological devices. I have an environmental science and geography background, so I worked a lot in those areas. And then I decided I needed to get a degree because I didn't have one. And I went to school and did that, and I stayed in school. And so my I went straight through my undergrad all the way through my Ph.D. in five years and took this academic job. So the academic job is a strange job market, the weirdest you will ever, ever encounter. But I came to the University of Cincinnati because it is a research school. And what that means in very layman's terms is my job is divided up into three parts. All professors have three parts, research, teaching, and service. At research schools, that research part is bigger. So most of my time is spent doing research. And and is that what kind of keeps you in the academia? You like the research element of things more than uh, being immersed in the military corporate world of tech writing? I like teaching a lot. And I'm, I'm kind of a rare academic because of my institution and the way that I'm wired in my head and the way I think things, that I can bring my research into the classroom in kind of a very synergistic sort of way. And a lot of people can't do that based on their location, their backgrounds, and all sorts of things. So they worked together really well for quite a few years. And I took the academic job because, yes, I did like research. And there were things that were driving me crazy in the field that I thought if I would help to train some of those people, some of those problems might be eradicated. But I was young and stupid then and didn't fully realize how institutions of higher education worked. And while I feel we've done a really good job here locally with our students and preparing them. I think we as a field on both sides of the house have a lot of work to do in getting our 
students or returning practitioners who want to change jobs. We have a lot of work to do in preparing them better. So you mentioned that some some things were driving you crazy in the field, and that's kind of what propelled you to do research and, and better understand this and get into academia. What, what were some of those things that were driving you crazy? Um, so, for instance, there was this lovely, lovely gentleman who wanted bullets formatted in a certain way in reports. Now, that is a really rather silly example. But what drove me crazy about that is that he couldn't get through his head that you can't use bullets on every sentence in something. Because when you use bullets in that way, uh, bullets traditionally the way that we read and process cognitively information, our eyes are going to be drawn to it. So you should be using bullets to highlight important information, not just randomly. Because if everything is highlighted, then nothing has any emphasis. And I couldn't convince him of that fact. And it was like, somebody's bound to have looked at this, right? And so it was trying to get information that could help make business arguments. That really inspired Hmm. me. So do you feel like you you, uh, found answers to some of these document design and uh, questions that you had in the academia? Partially. Partially. But the problem, and this goes to, I think, part of this divide and part of these comments that you routinely hear at professional practitioner conferences about why academics aren't doing better research or why can't we get the research back out. A lot of that research we do in tech comm, but we have, there's also other fields that do it. So psychology immediately comes to mind. So there is some research. And then the other thing that happens is Um, Take Karen Shriver's Dynamics of Document Design. It's a fabulous book. It was written in the late 80s. Nobody's ever really tried to update it. It's a good book. A lot of that information is still valid. And Karen is still out there walking the walk and talking the talk and taking her new research that she's done, particularly more in online environments now, and trying to spread the word. But she's not updated that big book. And a lot of the information is still in her head. And a lot of that information is still in a lot of academics' heads. And a lot of that has to do with time. Time, energy, and money. It's the same things that drive problems in professional organizations, drive problems in higher education. Yeah, let, let's jump into this this big question, right? This, this rift mm-hmm. between academics and practitioners. You mentioned Karen Shrivener published a book, uh, Dynamics of Document Design. Uh, fairly well-known book um, in its day. Uh, I actually don't know. Is Karen Shrivener an academic? Is mm-hmm. she a professor somewhere? She's both. Um, she taught for years at Carnegie Mellon, and to be honest, I'm not certain if she's still teaching there even part-time, but she has been a long-time practitioner, so she got her PhD and stayed in the work world. But she also okay. kind of crossed the border and kept teaching as well for many years. And she may still do that. Um, I've not actually seen Karen in a year or so, so I'm not, I'm not certain. Oh, well, maybe that's not the best example then. Let's say just any research that uh, a professor uh, makes in academia. Um, how do you get that information out to practitioners? Mm. You know, Does it just stay and live in these journals fi- uh, that are walled off by paywalls or how do, how do you cross that divide and 
connect people with the right information? It is extremely, extremely hard. And there are two primary problems for that. One um, is the paywall. And that paywall is there because of longstanding and entrenched ways that publishing is done in higher education. And in some ways, there's no way that me, uh, little Lisa at the University of Cincinnati, is really ever going to get around that. I can attempt to negotiate individually with a journal about something to get it outside of the paywall, but that's difficult. Oh, you can win an award, and then the publisher will take it outside of the paywall, which just happened with something that I wrote um, on accessibility in online writing classes and also just generally accessibility issues online. Um, but paywalls are there and there's no way around it. And so then that leads to problem two, that then it falls on the academic to try to get it out there in another way. And in many cases, one that's not rewarded in higher education. So just like in your job, you have a job description and you may or may not get merit or an increase or whatever at your evaluation time based on a specific set of measures. We have that same thing in higher education. And doing this sort of public work, not necessarily rewarded. So it falls way down the list. And if you're already working 70 hours a week, you don't really have the motivation to do it. And who would blame them? You know, everybody deserves a life, even an academic. So you have the, these two competing problems that everything is locked down based on longstanding traditions that started, you know, at least 50 years ago. And it just, there's a time and motivation factor. And that, though, is one area that we can definitely do better to try to get more of our practical research out into the hands of the people who need it. Well, when academics publish in a journal, does the journal retain okay. rights to the article indefinitely or just for a short period of it time? Depends on, it depends on the journal. Some of them are indefinitely. Some of them will allow you to publicly put the non-proof, that means the version before the version that's printed. I can put that on my personal website under some publisher's guidelines. Say technical communication, they'll allow you to use those freely and distribute them freely for educational purposes, which um, I hope all the people in the corporate office are plugging their ears, uh, which I always just cloak myself in that and my tech comp pieces are freely accessible on my website because I claim that I'm teaching people. So that takes care of that. Then you can have rogue people, again, like myself, that I just put it out there being outside of the paywall until somebody finds it and tells me to take it down, which they have. Um, so... <laughs> All right, well, well even with... Uh, let's take the tech comm journal, which is what people who are belong to the STC have access to. Uh, even that journal, which is probably one of the main ones, it right? Is. Um, even that one, that, even that journal doesn't really get the readership from practitioners that it, it could. I totally should. agree with you. Uh, so so why, why is that? This is me taking a long pause, trying to figure out how to say this <laughs> so I don't, you know, piss off a ton of people and get in a lot of hot water. Um, when George Hayhoe, who edited that journal for many, many years, uh, was still editor, he consistently tried to, to come in and out and to do a better job 
but even he would probably admit out loud that he wasn't as successful as he wanted to be. And that's because as an editor, you can only publish what you get. And by that I mean you can only publish what somebody takes the time to submit to you and then goes through peer review and at technical communication it's cool and interesting because the editors there have consistently always tried to get one academic and one practitioner to review those things. But you can well imagine that if you have one academic and one practitioner reviewing something that you might come back with two completely disparate reviews that then author has to try to go, hmm, I can't make everybody happy here. Where can I get in the middle? And that can lead to somebody taking a really good piece of work and moving it somewhere else. So the problem comes down to what's submitted and how it gets through peer review. Well, just I'm just kind of curious now, how many articles that are submitted get accepted into the TechCom Journal? Is it like 50% or like 5%? That is an excellent question. And the editors um, or even... Liz and the main STC office may have that information, but most TechCom journals um, that have been around a while, and TechCom is the oldest in the field, uh, you're looking at acceptance rates between, depending on years and vagaries of things, 19 to 25%. Okay. So uh, now what about matters of style? Or, or yeah, okay, let's talk about this. So matters of style. In the TechCom journal... Um, you know, there's a strong emphasis on explaining the research methods that kind of validate the, the information in there. Uh, you know, it's written in an academic style, so kind of more syllables per, per word, denser, you know, long paragraphs, uh, not, as, not as much eye candy. Could this be a reason that practitioners just um, kind of don't, aren't drawn to oh, it? Oh, yeah, without a doubt without a doubt. And the only specific place, uh, and again, in technical communication as the only journal in the field that actually does this, in their abstract summary that appears at the beginning of every article, we authors are required to actually say, what are the practitioner's takeaways in their bullets? But typically, that's the only place you're going to see that very, very direct connection to practice, which is kind of, yeah, which I, is kind of sad. I, I did see that, and I, I um, because I was reading through the TechCom Journal this last week, and I saw those, and I thought that was a uh, pretty. I thought that was a great addition. Yeah, that was. Um, um, that's been pretty recent, probably in the last since I've been an academic, because it wasn't there when I was a practitioner. So, yeah, and that's a great way to at least show people what the idea is, but we probably do need to make more direct references in the writing itself you know particularly when you get to those implication or conclusion sections here's really if you're a practitioner here's how you could start to be using it but when you talk about academic style that's entrenched as well and i'm not to, i'm not defending it at all but i can tell you one of the very first academic reviews i ever got i was told to make it more academic so I have learned to take my own particular writing style that was very successful for me as a technical communicator, and I've had to change it to become an academic. And that was painfully, painfully difficult for me, but I would have never published a thing had I not done that. Should that be Absolutely. changed? Absolutely. 
yeah, it seems like academics are really trapped here because in order to excel in the field, in the in the university and, and academia, you've got to publish in highly respected journals, right? Yes. And the style, as you say, is a thick academic style that is, you know, not really what you'd find in a popular magazine or blog or some other some other sort of publication. Um, so now it seems like some of these journal articles, though, uh, it seems like they, they take a long time. <laughs> and so the person has a lot of investment in writing it. Um, but you're saying there's no real incentive or reward for a professor to take that same material and kind of create a more popular version of the article for uh, uh, like some kind of online venue for that there's no incentive for that like if you if you publish something if you publish in uh in in, i don't know techworld.com or something there's no reward at all it fits into a category and um while i have not researched this particular aspect of the academic job we are required much like every employee anywhere in the world to do an annual performance review and those things have categories And there is a category for that sort of writing. But when it goes to a faculty committee and they're looking at it to go, hmm, who might get merit, which is our way of saying you might get a small raise, but not everybody is eligible for it because it's based on production. Those sorts of popular press public writings are rated lower. So... That yeah. is something that yeah, needs I mean, to be changed, and there are some institutions that have moved toward changing it. I've gotten a lot of credit for um, service and, and blog sorts of postings and publicness of my work, but I think part of that has been because of the volume of it. <laughs> so the review committee looked and went, oh, wow, there's a whole ton of that. That's got to count for something. But again, you know, you have to make that case. And it's really hard, particularly if you're young in the field, who are our most energetic, who are the most uh, innovative sorts of researchers looking at cool and interesting things. Those people are the ones who are under the most pressure to do things that fall within very strict categories. They don't have as much flexibility to be a squeaky wheel or to do things that they may have more passion about because it isn't credited the way other work is. So I, I uh, woke up this morning and I was looking at my RSS feed and I saw an article that, uh, or, or a blog post by Larry, Larry mm-hmm. Coons. What should a technical, what should a technical communication course teach? <laughs> and uh, I was like, wow, there was this exact same topic covered in a tech com journal. I think it was by maybe Miles yes. Kimball. Um, I was on, I you know, what should. Project from the very beginning, but. Um, was unable to, because of other commitments, participate in the writing of it. But all of the work leading up to the recent issue of technical communication that was edited by Miles, um, I was involved with all of that. Yeah, I, I saw that you had, had done some of the research uh, methodology in there yeah. or something. Yeah, because my it, one of my primary it, research areas... Um, so if you, somebody came to you, Tom, and said, what are your expertise areas? You would say... Uh, me? Oh. Long pause. <laughs> oh, that was a fill in the blank. Oh, uh, API documentation, uh, 
testing and maybe visual communication? All right, there you go. So academics are no different. We need to sort of specialize in something. And so if somebody came to me and said, hey, Lisa, what's your specialties? I have two. And they're very different. <laughs> and they don't necessarily overlap. But one of them that is very particular to this conversation has to do with academic programs. There's no one in the world that knows more about academic programs, both in the U.S. and internationally, than me. And the reason for that is, is because for the last six years, I have gathered an enormous amount of data points and taught to a vast number of faculty and administrators about programs. And so when you start talking about what should we teach in classes, I got stuff for you. <laughs> and um, it's an interesting, interesting point, particularly because programs need to prepare people to do certain things, but there are always constraints and there are always barriers to being able to make that um, as successful as we may need to be. Well, the, the article um, that I was kind of referring to in that in that issue, which I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar, called Training and Education, Technical Communication Managers Speak Out. Mm -hmm. And one of his findings is that basically academic programs shouldn't teach tools. They should teach fundamentals of technical writing, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was, uh, I was like, wow, I, I kind of, you get this impression when you're in the job market that in order to, you know, move up in the world, you've got to be more technical and immerse yourself and know this and that programming language and tool and yada, yada. But it sounds like, based on the research in there, this whole emphasis on tools is a bit overblown in terms of what really people are looking for. This, uh, yes and, the, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, comment on that. <laughs> yes and no. Uh, first, keep in mind that that piece was talking to representatives of STC's executive board. And so it varied from five to eight participants. That's it. Okay. But it was true that it was a very interesting discussion when it came up that we don't need to be teaching tools and programs. But then you can easily counter that with other research in the field that has looked at job ads that specifically list a long laundry list of here are the technologies you need to know. And so immediately there's a disconnect, there's a contradiction, one's pushing against the other. But then you add the other layer of complexity there that people who are writing those job ads may not be the actual people who are hiring, right? And then you circle back around to um, the fact that historically, programs have always taught tools and have always taught basic technical writing skills. Where the bigger disconnect comes into play is um, the tool that we teach may not be the one tool you know something about. So let's also remember that if you stand with 10 other people at the STC Summit, you're all technical communicators. I'm thinking that your jobs are gonna be pretty different. And it's likely that in just those 10 people standing around, that you have tool expertise in at least five different tools that may accomplish the same thing. And so I think one of the reasons to that those managers talked about you don't need to teach the tool is because sometimes when you teach a tool, 
it is possible that that student and eventual employee gets so caught up and then gets afraid to try a different tool. So you see how all of that kind of works together, one pushing on the other, it's circular and recursive, and it, it's sort of this pool that we need to get ourselves out of. Um, I always phrase it in the form of technological literacy. I can use, I don't know, seven different help authoring tools, but if you know one, you can probably use six others. And so it's to understand how they basically work to understand the tools and tips and techniques to understand that you have to do single sourcing, that you need to know something about XML and data, that you need to know these other bigger terms that feed into how you use the tool to accomplish your problem or solve your problem. I, I imagine you run into this scenario a lot with oh, students. Oh, it's constant. <laughs> it is constant. Because here's the, uh, oh, and here's just another factor that plays into it. These technologies ain't cheap. And almost every ad you ever see, somebody wants to know something, wants you to know something about Adobe. Well, when Adobe went to the Creative Cloud, that was one of the world's worst things that ever happened to academic programs because that increased the cost at least fivefold. So the state of Ohio was very fortunate that they had a big committee of like big people with lots of titles after their names from all the universities. And they banded together because there were so many complaints and pushbacks from faculty and administrators at all of their institutions in Ohio. They went to Adobe and said, no way. And they negotiated a very, very specific deal. So our cost basically stayed the same. We were lucky. There are a lot of places that are having to try to figure out how to still teach Adobe now that it's in a cloud and all sorts of different issues that go into the cost with that. And so, yeah, students come in and they say, I just saw these job ads. Why aren't we, where's the frame maker course? <laughs> <laughs> well, sweetie, there ain't one here. <laughs> Here's why. That's, that's interesting. I actually thought the cloud would have, would have uh, freed up access. I mean, rather than paying $1,000 for software, you pay... 20, 20 or 30, I don't even know how much it is, maybe $50 a month, and you learn uh, it in two months. A month, a month per machine. Can't, can't you just build that into a, I mean, can a student consider that the same price of a book? These textbooks cost more than that. Uh, yes and no, which kind of goes to, again, the complexities that are, are kind of difficult to explain in, you know, a minute. Um, in the old school ways, we got discounted, we, education, based on volume. And again, this is all very institutional specific. But at a big, huge place like mine, the University of Cincinnati, we have 45,000 students, wow. 12,000 employees. Um, big, huge place like mine, we have some leverage. We have some bargaining power. And so we were paying per license for a computer lab. And so we paid for, it ended up being 45 licenses that then our tech people would at, would literally install. But when you move to the cloud, that's per month, per machine. So you, if even at the student discounted rate, at, you know, and it was an introductory rate, at something like 20 bucks a month, that was still more per machine than a, the old license was. 
they would still allow you, Adobe was still trying to say they would allow you to do to buy perpetual licenses or some crap for an actual disk, but then they weren't going to update that. So we were kind of caught in this between, like, what do we do? And, and that's kind of what happens. So a lot of institutions, when you make this argument about students can buy it just like a book, typically the way the cloud works is you have an introductory offer, you can try it out for a few months, which is oftentimes what we can do in some classes. But then students either have to buy it or continue it. And it just puts, and then it goes to overall educational cost, what do you want to offload onto the student? And a lot of programs sit around and talk about this a great deal. Because it can get expensive if you're asking them to, to buy different Adobe Cloud items because there are different packages that may not have all the softwares that you need in all the classes, and so they may end up needing to buy three or four subscriptions. And then you go, hmm, that is more than a book. What can we do that's open source that's similar, or what can we do, can we share? And it, it, you just have to end up getting creative or pull your hair out, or both. Now, putting aside the the problem of teaching students or helping them learn tools, you know, for most practitioners, they're, they're married to the tool that they're using in their current work. And so a lot of community and interest and relevance to, to a practitioner revolves around whether content addresses that tool. For example, there's a whole conference, Mad World, mm -hmm. that, that kind of Mad focuses, <laughs> yeah, focuses on, on Madcap products. Um, and other topics, but you know, if you're a Flare user, that's where you find a lot of information. And similarly, there's, I believe, there's something for Authorit and and uh, Dita. Uh, so a lot of these communities spring up and revolve around tools. And if you take away tools entirely from the academic journals, uh, and for example, I I've searched in the TechCom journal for Dita. Dita and you're not going like, to find a whole lot. Yeah, I don't find anything. <laughs> you know, and, and yet Dita is like all over the web in terms of the practitioner venues uh, where they'll go and find information. So um, do you think that this lack of a focus on tools is one reason why practitioners don't find academic journals as relevant? It could. It could. And But, but I would say that practitioners don't find them as relevant because they're so hard to get to, to begin with. And sometimes it's difficult to see what the actual practical application is to their jobs. And we have to, we academics have to do a better job of that because a lot of the research is very relevant. It totally and completely is very relevant. But then sometimes you may get a hint of that in one article, but it, but you're going to need to go and look at three others that were referenced and then it becomes a time and again access issue and who's got that kind of time hell i don't have that kind of time someday so <laughs> what's this latest issue in technical communication journal uh whose title was technical communication how a few great companies get it done was this uh kind of focus trying to be more relevant to practitioners and in, in in a specific you know context of a company what are the best practices basically I think it came up sort of organically in conversations between the board and some academics that it might be a good idea 
to sort of to, to look at it and to have these conversations and see what's happening as a way to start to bridge this divide to give insights into what's going on in some of these great companies. Um, I don't think it was specifically, okay, this is going to, we're doing this just to appeal to practitioners. I, I think it was more than that. Um, but it points to the types of research that can be done. But, you know, keep in mind that took two and a half years, I think. <laughs> wow. Yeah, from the, from the first, you know, maybe two years from the first discussion of it to the publication of it. It took some time, as all good research does. And I think this is the other big point people need to remember, all people. Research is not easy. And if it's done well, it is not done quickly. It just can't be. Well, why, why is the research so difficult? Is it because academics don't really have free access to practitioners who are willing to complete surveys, be observed, answer questions, I don't know, provide other information? It's partially that. That is a problem. You know, if I were listing barriers, that's going to be one of them. I don't have that problem. Right. So if I wanted to go out and do workplace research, I know exactly who to call, how to get it started and all of those things. But I was a consultant for a thousand years and I still know a ton of people and I still consult. Right. So uh, I just did a knowledge management project on how to revise and, and capture and organize content. So I know who to call. It is a barrier. I think the other issue is that it takes a while to come up with really the best way to answer a question sometimes. And research from the academic perspective has to be rigorous or it's not going to get published. And I would argue, because the, one of the reasons I was so successful as a consultant was I knew how to do good research. And one of the things that drives me crazy when I go to professional conferences is I don't buy some of the research you're reporting on because it wasn't done with rigorous methods in mind. And I go, well, that might work for, you know, your division within this one very specific context, but it's never going to work anywhere else. And that notion of generalizable is huge in the research world because it's not really research unless it's generalizable. Yeah, I... I can see how the research element, you know, is, is one of these huge dividing factors that separates academic publications from non-academic publications. And, and, uh, you we know, need both. Uh, let me just throw it out there. We need both kinds of views because some of these sort of one-off, this is what we're doing at my company. These are the problems we had. This is how I overcame it. That's what's called preliminary data. And if that's a big problem a lot of companies are facing, then that's the point you need an academic to come in and say, okay, I can try to do this study for you. Now we need at least 10 other organizations to sort of see if how you solve the problem, if we can implement it and watch it and work it and see how, it, see if it actually works. So that's sort of in my head how you could become more synergistic on both sides of the house to start to produce research that is actionable and applied. One of the questions that this latest TechCom journal tries to answer is, should technical writers be specialists or generalists? Uh, you know, what's their core identity? And, and the conclusion 
that they arrived in this article is that basically uh, tech writers should be generalists, and that's kind of what forms the core identity of a tech writer and makes them able to play key roles in, throughout the product lifecycle and be key players. Uh, so if you're trying to, let's say you have this question, should I be a specialist or generalist? Um, the academic's approach was to basically do this iterative survey method with eight different yeah, the Delphi method. Yeah, managers at different companies. And, and it seemed really nebulous trying to zero in on exactly what the consensus was and, and sorting through their, their their qualitative comments. Do you think uh, this is the best way to go about answering difficult questions like that? Or would you approach – is there other uh, oh, methods? There are definitely other methods. And so when you're trying to talk about that very specific question, the one you raised, uh, generalist versus specialist, that's going to take a multi-stage approach to really get an answer that could be generalizable, that people could feel comfortable with. Um, and I think what that research would end up finding is that you need to start as a generalist, but if you're ever going to advance, you're going to have to know something about something. <laughs> and that would be the specialist. So I bounced in and out of a lot of organizations and industry types, and I know a lot about a lot of things, but I had to learn that content knowledge. You know, I would have never gotten into writing information about quality assurance and water quality if I didn't understand about the environmental data that underscores that stuff. And, you know, what levels of fecal material can you actually have in water for it to be safe? <laughs> you know? So, um, That's the sort of knowledge that I don't even want to know about. <laughs> know. See? See, it's crazy. But that is kind of a specialist sort of a knowledge. And I learned that on the job. And then I, I had some background in it, but then I learned a lot of it on the job. And so I would say that the question of generalist versus specialist is kind of flawed to begin with because that's not really what you're trying to find out. What you're trying to find out is what do successful practitioners, how do they one view themselves and how did they get there? And that's a very different kind of question that requires a different kind of research. So if I'm a practitioner and I'm, and I've got this question of specialist versus generalist, uh, and I see that, oh, there's an article in the TechCom Journal where they talk to half a dozen managers, and this is their opinion. And I also Google it online, and I see, oh, this person, eh, they've been, they've, I don't know, been in the world for 20 years, uh, different jobs, and based on their own experiences, this is their thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> am I going to be more persuaded by by the academic approach or by just the professional's uh, opinion approach? I mean, does it really? Does all this research really matter to practitioners, or do they do they think that, you know, it's overkill for just trying to answer a question that, as you say, could be flawed in the begin with, or just could be subject to uh, a bias and not really uh, that that relevant or not really that objective of a truth, so to speak? So that's an interesting, interesting question, and I'm going to answer it two ways. I was a very different kind of practitioner because I was a consultant and I know that and I know that my view of pretty much everything is a little skewed because of that because when you're asked to come into an organization as a consultant 
you're there because they couldn't solve the problem themselves. And so you already sort of are perceived in a very different way. So for my job, research of all shapes, kinds, and sizes was key to my survival because I constantly had to argue for the positions that I was taking. So up front, I have a research bias. Then the other cool thing about being an academic, it's probably one of the coolest things ever, is you can sit around and read some really weird and obscure stuff and you can call that research. And some of the weird, obscure stuff that I read is historical documents. And when I say historical, think 14th and 15th century. And what I have learned from reading very old technical documentation is that everything that's old is new again, and that that history has enabled me to ask better questions. So both of those things um, show that there is a value to knowledge. However, it's your own orientation as to which value, which knowledge are going to value more. You see this play out right now in the health world, health and medicine. Okay, so we, I think nobody would disagree that healthcare in the U.S. has some major problems. Nobody would disagree with that. The reasons for that, a lot of disagreement. But if you trickle all the way down to a doctor-patient sitting in a room together, the doctor has this knowledge that he's learned through many years of school that's based on a lot of research studies, random control trials, and a host of other things that show what may or may not work for a person. Patient may be sitting there just logging off an online community to where 10 other people that look just like them all didn't have success with the drug that the doctor is wanting to prescribe. So you have a, a contradiction between specialized, authorized knowledge and experiential knowledge. And so it just depends on which one you think is more valid. I can't answer that for you. I'm of the opinion they're both valid in their own ways. Well, okay, let's uh, come back to this part of your answer earlier here. You said you are a consultant, so you often had to go into a company and pitch a solution uh, to a problem that they couldn't solve. And in order to persuade them of the solution, you had to rely on some kind of evidence, research, mm -hmm. argument of some kind. Um, so if you come, let's say that the, the company is trying to figure out how early technical writers should be involved in the product life cycle. You know, what point do you involve a tech writer? Two weeks before release or when you're just sketching the wireframes to design it? Um, and let's say you find some articles in the TechCom journal that say one thing. Um, maybe they say you should get involved early. Could you leverage the that academic research in this consultant context to provide a persuasive argument that people would actually listen to? Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because it gives me, it gives me validity and authority beyond uh, my own little anecdote. So an anecdote is typically just your own personal experience. That is valid. Don't get me wrong. An anecdote is a data point, but it is oftentimes not enough to make 
large-scale business decisions with multi-millions of dollars attached to it. So I need a little more than that, that anecdote. So you can, as, as a consultant or as an employee, you can take your anecdote, you can combine it to the guy who sits next to you or the gal who sits next to you. You can go to academic journals and you can see what they say, and that becomes your third data point, which is actually a really big point because it may have multiple studies. Then you can go to some practitioner online sorts of things published in things like Intercom or Techcom World or an expert whose name that you know because you've seen them at conferences for years and a blog post. They just did this many little thing at their organization and this is how they solved the problem. So then you have another data point. And when you put all of those things together, that becomes a pretty per persuasive case, hmm. particularly if you match all that research to the organization's goals and what they're trying to determine what they're trying to do. So one of the biggest complaints that consistently comes up about academic programs, new employees don't understand enough of the business. That's totally true. And you have to understand that to be able to make a really good case. You have to understand it to be able to produce exactly what the organization needs. So uh, let's come to this, this ultimate question here. Um, what are your thoughts on how we can bridge the divide between practitioners and academics? Do you think most of the burden is, is just left to the practitioner to basically oh, make no. use of this or, you know, well, give us some practical solutions. So uh, your blog post that you just posted about this divide, you offered five solutions, I think. Yeah. And all of them were really, really good. Um, as far as number two, which was talking about academics need to be more public in their work, uh, this has been an ongoing, um, even though, as I previously said, it's hard to get credit for that, there is a rising tide amongst academics that if they were given some sort of assistance, they would probably be more open to writing blog posts, taking their um, very academic work and saying, here's how a practitioner can try to use it. And so there is this um, sort of gathering of some smart minds who are trying to figure out how to make that happen. And hopefully we'll be able to do that within the next you know, six months to a year to consistently be able to put out, quote, practitioner versions of some of the research that could be applied. Um, your number three about practitioners participating when asked, huge. <laughs> Can I just say huge? So practitioners definitely need to not immediately discount those requests, even though they may f have problems or concerns or questions about it. Don't discount it. Participate. Or it always says, who do I contact? If you got a question, contact them. <laughs> if you have problems and you think this research is fundamentally flawed or it's silly, contact them and tell them why. Because that in itself is useful data in being able to ask better questions that practitioners actually need and want. Um, your number four, having to do with keeping, keeping academics uh, accountable, I think it was. Practitioners need to tell us what they need. Um, I go out in the world a lot. 
and I know what's going on here locally in Cincinnati, and I know some things going on back home in Texas. I know what some of those people, the problems that they're having, particularly with uh, the use of the internet and user-generated comments and how to interact, how to bring social media into documentation or into tech marketing and all sorts of different things. I know some stuff, but I don't know everything. So it's useful for practitioners in some way to tell us what it is you need, to point us in a direction. Because there are always moments in any academic's career that they have the time, ability, space, inclination to shift directions, to go in another way and do a different sort of research than maybe that they were used to doing in the past. So, you know, tell us what we need to do. And I think there's a way to do that with, I would add to your list, we have to have more exchanges, meaning there are only a few practitioners that will go to an academic conference and there's only a few academics that are going to go to an, uh, vice versa. How did I just say it? We need to be showing up at other places more. And I think one of the things that has to be done when we go to these other places is we need a dedicated space to where you just talk about things. So I was totally amazed at the STC this year because I was talking about academic programs that there were 70 people in my room at 8.30 in the morning. I was like, what is this? This is crazy town. But they were interested in these big sorts of questions about what our programs are doing. And what was most surprising to me was how could practitioners participate more in programs? How could they build internships for students? How could they get some of their questions answered by academic research? That was surprising to me in one way, but and it opens up this opportunity that we have to grasp a hold of. We have to be talking to each other more in different locations. We just do. And I would also say that practitioners don't need to wait until the SDC summit to come to me and say, how do I reach out? <laughs> You just need to be looking around in your local place and what institutions of higher education are there and what can you fit into your life that could be a potential benefit to those programs. Can you do a one-off workshop on the latest tool? Can you go in and talk about business use cases on how documentation impacts the bottom line? Can you go in and just do a business 101 course about budgets? Can you lecture in a very specific class? Can you go and build networking events where you bring some of your friends and you talk to students for an hour? So there are very kind of easy ways to reach out to academic programs and contribute and bring back, bring that outside view into the classrooms. Those are the big things. I think those are all, those are all great. I mean, I, I'm kind of excited to, uh, I hate to say this, to discover the TechCom Journal, <laughs> even though I've had access to it for years, really start to read it and, and get into some of this academic stuff. I feel like I've missed out on, on so many past articles and, and what would have been great topics for blog posts, podcasts, um, just have, they've been sitting in front of me and I've neglected to really dive in. So I'm hoping to, to I don't know, um, just be more cognizant of what research is going on and, and you know, invite maybe TechCom professors to speak at our chapter, interview more people who've done research that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, as you say, these exchanges, uh, 
just conferences and otherwise should be a lot more fluent and common. So, absolutely. And the the best way to to be able to do these sorts of things is if you know I can end up nagging my friends to talk about their research. Then it's useful to have you know the practitioner network. And there's quite a few very you know far-reaching impact people on social media that that's the way that you start to spread that research. So if I, if I write a blog post about how to write something to be more health literate and hospital organizations for low literate patients and caregivers, that's important kind of stuff. There's a lot of people working in health and medicine. Yeah. So if I, you know, give you a quick hit that came out of research, then it's the spreading of the word that's also important because I think academics don't really know how to do that a lot because you're in your place, you're in your world. And so just having a network that can spread the word is also important. Well, Lisa, is there any uh, topic that we didn't talk about that you want to be sure to cover or did you have any final thoughts you wanted to add here as we come to a close? I do want to say one, one thing. And I say this with much love and affection for my field. I wouldn't be taking this time today and I wouldn't still go to professional and academic conferences if I didn't believe a lot in technical and professional communication and wanting to do it better. But one thing that drives me up the wall is when practitioners feel as though they know everything about an academic's job because they went to college. It's difficult for me to fully accept your opinion when it's based on nothing. I'm not about to send Jeff Bezos an email to tell him how to run Amazon because I shopped at Amazon. So it's, you need to be a little more kind and aware that the academic job is weird and different. And just because you went to college, you don't necessarily know how to do it. Yeah, I think there's definitely this attitude among practitioners that academics are out of touch. They don't really understand the market. They, you know, don't even, they're not tech savvy. They're kind of like, <laughs> and, and that attitude, you know, is completely unfounded. Or maybe it's based off one article they glanced at for two minutes, you know. And it very well could be. And so that that's my whole point, Tom, is that... Practitioners need to just be more aware that we're people with high demand jobs that have multiple parts to those jobs. And just because you went to college doesn't mean that you know everything about those jobs. And just like I'm not going to go into your corporation and after talking to you for two minutes, deem that you have no idea what you're doing and you need to go, you know, update your skills. That same sort of reciprocal respect would be nice. Yeah, well, I think part of the that respect is going to come as practitioners see the value of the research and oh, totally. and, and totally. understand it, and we're like, oh wow, they're actually writing about relevant topics, and oh yeah, that totally applies to what I'm doing. You know that 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 value sense of value will help uh, increase the respect, no doubt. So well, Lisa, oh sorry, go ahead. One last thing. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about research. It's also important to keep something in mind that every academic teaches. And so we're preparing that next generation of your employees and your coworkers. And we're really working hard at it. Whether or not it meets all of your expectations 
Probably not. Do we need to improve? Absolutely. But we are working hard at it. And I think that's the other kind of mutual respect that also needs, you know, to be given, the academics need to be given their due. That, that we do consistently work on curriculum, trying to update it, trying to keep it relevant to what's going on in the world in 2015. But these things are hard to do. Just like it's hard to turn the tide in any organization to change a culture, it's, it's you know, baby steps. And a big part of that is increasing these sorts of conversations and having a reciprocal feedback loop about the type of not only research, but teaching that we're doing and making it practical to what's going on in the world. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for your time and sharing your thoughts and expertise with us. Is there a way that people can contact you, your website or, or, or social media or other ways? Um, you can always reach me at my last name at tek-ritr.com. And that is also my personal website is techwriter.com. I am on Twitter at L-M-E-L-O-N-C-O-N. Those are the best ways. All right. Well, thanks, Lisa. Thank you, Tom.